You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, meme stock mania is back. Bed Bath & Beyond surges in defiance of Wall Street as retail investors get a second wind. I'll chat with the CEO of StockTwits about how social media is impacting market moves. Plus, you know who else is back? Adam Newman. Yes, the WeWork founder who lost billions for investors in one of tech's most spectacular flameouts. He's just raised money yet again getting the biggest check ever written by Andreessen Horowitz. Silicon Valley's water cooler is all abuzz. We will take you there. And big tech companies like Microsoft and Amazon have pledged to go green. But critics say they're also helping big oil prolong the fossil-fueled age. We'll tell you how. Let's take a look now at a three-week chart of Bed Bath & Beyond. The stock up 400% despite at least three downgrades on Wall Street. Shares were halted after spiking this morning, a sure sign the meme trade is alive and well. I want to bring in Rishi Khanna now, CEO of StockTwits, a social platform for investors. So Rishi, curious what kind of activity you saw on StockTwits ahead of this surge. Hey, Emily, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so we saw, you know, kind of at the end of July, beginning of August, we saw uh, Bed Bath & Beyond rocket up to, uh, you know, one of the, on the top leaderboards in terms of activity. So since August 1st, it's been second only to AMC in activity. And, you know, historically over the last six months, Bed Bath & Beyond has not cracked the top, you know, 10, 20 or so. Um, and also since August 1st, we've seen it grow its followers by 33%, you know, approaching 50,000 followers on StockTwits. And I 
I think the uh, most interesting thing also has been the stock to its social sentiment over the last you know four or five months since about April has been mostly negative uh, on Bed Bath and Beyond. And then there was a spike in early July in its sentiment, and then since August first, it has uh, moved to an extremely positive position and has maintained that position. And you kind of see that correlated with the run up in price, you know, from the five dollars that it's been at for most of the last uh, you know six plus months to, I don't know where to close that today, 20 bucks, right? 2025. So uh, we've seen a lot of really interesting activity and, and activity that started in July on the Bed Bath & Beyond side. So here's the question. Why? Why are retail investors on this train? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's a couple factors, and Bed Bath & Beyond is probably an interesting one, but overall, meme stocks have, you know, we've seen over, you know, has, has seen less capitulation um, in the retail markets than some of the other ones. So AMC has maintained its position, you know, GameStop has been steady, uh, and so the interest there from the retail world has has maintained better than some of the other stocks. Uh, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, I think there's a, probably a lot of factors at play here. There's, you know, the short interest report that came out at the end of July, uh, you know, I think the Ryan Cohen news, obviously, today, yesterday uh, was probably a big catalyst and factor. And, you know, in, in the summer, we've had, generally speaking, you know, low, low volumes. Uh, and uh, and so I think all these pieces come together and retail definitely still seeks out these, you know, kind of um, opportunities. Retail traders and investors seek out these opportunities of dislocations, whether it's short interest or or uh, just price movements. And Bed Bath & Beyond has been the beneficiary as a stock over the last you know, uh, uh, three weeks, I guess, right? So, Can you talk a little bit about the power of Ryan Cohen in particular? Obviously, he's the, the chair of, of GameStop, which is sort of the original meme stock. But how much of this is driven by him and how much of this is truly driven by general retail investor sentiment? Um, you know, I, I think definitely in the in the retail trading community, the Wall Street best community, you know, the... the um, kind of a meme stock community, uh, Ryan Cohn seems to have uh, some pretty significant uh, sway on the markets. Uh, you know, I don't know, personally, I can't speak to anything of that nature. Uh, but, you know, I think you, if you look at it, you know, when he takes, uh, when he takes positions, the markets move, right? And so uh, the move we saw today in Bed Bath & Beyond after already a massive move, uh, you know, can probably highly be attributed to the news that he took, you know, the out-of-money uh, call options. Uh, you know, I think that came out last night or this morning or whenever it did. But um, so, you know, it's he's an interesting uh, person in this place, obviously uh, kind of first with the GameStop, but, you know, uh, you know has, has made a lot of moves over, over the last 18 months that have uh, definitely been followed by the retail community community and the investing community. So, you know, I think you can't ignore what he does, at least in short-term bursts. In general, you know, we're hearing, you know, we're seeing this talked about on Reddit, we're seeing this stuff talked about on Twitter. What would you say the role is of social media in stock market movements these days? You know, I think the role of social media and, you know, kind of social platforms in general is... Uh, you know, we do disseminate, you know, information quickly. We allow, you know, kind of the communication and sharing of ideas. Uh, and, and I think, you know, the ability for retail, especially to, you know, kind of communicate, you know, to some extent they've organized in the past, right? Like as, as we remember in the uh, kind of the major meme stock moment of, of 21. Uh, and I think, you know, social media has a strong role to play and, you know, platforms like StockTwits to, you know, kind of, 
give retail a place to you know learn to collaborate to share and uh and and you know ideally to you know kind of uh, do it in a way where they where they profit from it and they they learn in a positive way so uh it's it's a powerful tool i think you know it, it can be used for good and bad and and uh you know but there's a lot of uh you know education and learning and and you know, partnerships that kind of come out of it from from a community perspective, I think. Any regulatory concerns for stock twits at at a moment like this? Um, not, you know, no, not not so much. I mean, we're we're you know, we do we have our house rules and stuff, but those are our rules, and uh, um, you know, we cooperate where you know there are issues, you know, potentially on the board. Um, you know, uh, we do know obviously some of the bigger agencies like the SEC and stuff are are paying attention. Uh, but no, I mean, you know, we don't you know see any ma- massive regulatory issues, um, you know, along the lines of social media, not in not in the current kind of uh, environment. I don't think. All right, uh, Rishi Khanna, CEO of StockTwits, thank you for joining us on the latest uh, addition to the meme craze. All right, coming up, Silicon Valley's best-known venture capitalist just wrote its biggest check ever to controversial WeWork founder Adam Newman, sparking an outcry about yet another tech guy failing up. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Tech venture capital pioneer Andreessen Horowitz has just made one of its biggest ever bets on the man behind WeWork. 
well, some would call it the WeWork disaster. The firm writing its largest single check investment, $350 million to Flow, a residential real estate startup founded by Adam Newman. According to Mark Andreessen, Flow is rethinking the entire value chain from the way buildings are purchased and owned to the way residents interact with their buildings to the way value is distributed among stakeholders. Joining me now to discuss Bloomberg Businessweek's Max Chafkin. A lot of tweets today about this, Max. A lot of tweets. What's Adam Newman's angle here, and why is Mark Andreessen betting on it? Right. Well, it feels like, and again, the, the details here are, are so sketchy, and I think that's part of the reason that, that there's a lot of skepticism. It feels like Adam Newman is trying to do something very similar to what he did with WeWork, which is to take a uh, traditional uh, real estate business. With WeWork, of course, it was commercial real estate offices. Uh, here we have, uh, with Flow, uh, residential real estate apartments, and uh, kind of give it a text sheen. And that worked for, for uh, you know, quite a while with WeWork. We saw the valuation climb to something like $50 billion. Um, and then, of course, um, as you said, it kind of fell apart. And, and what we have now is a much more conventional uh, real estate company that uh, a lot of investors lost a lot of money in. So it's sort of hard to understand why Mark Andreessen, why Andreessen Horowitz would be writing such a large check, although you, you just have to think they see this as, you know, another long shot bet. You know, maybe this this is a, a contrarian angle. It kind of se seems weird to have, a, you know, backing a, a billionaire as a contrarian angle. But you know, Mark Andreessen is uh, more successful than I am, so maybe he knows something I don't. <laughs> well, Masayoshi Son lost almost nine billion dollars on WeWork. Why do you think Mark? Why does Mark Andreessen think that's not going to be his fate? I mean, is he the smartest VC ever, or is he also being hoodwinked? Well, I mean, you know, of course, Adam Newman. Uh, you know, if you, if you read some of the published accounts, was uh, very effective at talking rich people out of their money. And so and so that may be um, part of what's going on here. Uh, Andreessen clearly has, you know, a soft spot for uh, trolling and that sort of thing. So so maybe that is playing into it. Um, you also, if you read between the lines of, of the uh, blog post he wrote that was published yesterday, it sounds like there's going to be some sort of crypto or tokenized angle here, which of course Andreessen Horowitz has been um, very into. I mean, the, I think the jury is still very much out on whether or not that's going to work. Um, but it, it feels like, hey, maybe we've got WeWork, but with apartments and a little bit of crypto mixed in. And you know, yeah, you be the judge of whether that's a good idea or not. Sounds like a recipe for something. All right, Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, thanks for weighing in. We're going to get some more reaction to this now. The real question, of course, is in a valley where it is notoriously hard for some founders to raise money. Why is it so easy for some founders who failed or messed up to raise money again? Allison Byers, an early stage founder and angel investor, tweeted, I'm obviously outraged by the A16Z news. If you follow me, rage is likely all over your feet. I'm also not surprised at all. This isn't new. It is how VC operates. Joining me now, Allison Byers, founder and CEO of Scroobius. Allen, Allison, why do you feel so much rage? Yeah, so uh, whenever something big like this comes out, a big funding round, a lot of underrepresented founders, particularly women, people of color, are asked, why, why the outrage? Why do you have this emotion? Uh, well, it's because only 2% of VC dollars go to women. 2% go to Latinx founders, 0.67% go to black founders, and there are less than 100 black women total who have raised more than a million in DC funding. That's the outrage. It's visceral. It hits you. 
But then it also quickly becomes a muted rage because, as I tweeted, it is expected. It is not a surprise. We are used to it. But you you have to feel that rage when you are part of that community that is just historically blocked from accessing this funding. That said, we reached out to a lot of female investors today. Privately, they feel like you. Publicly, they don't want to talk about it. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, it is really difficult to talk about. In any industry where you are marginalized or where you can have repercussions for speaking out, it can be a scary thing to do, right? It, I, it, there's risks. There's risks to my business. There's risks to those who associate with me when I am outspoken. But I also really believe that in order to have any kind of change or uh, awakening of these reactions within other populations and segments, you can do something about it. You have to talk openly about it. And it, to me, it's just a clear choice uh, in the community that comes around it and opportunities like this that come from it is how you catalyze public discourse and, and really make a change. So here's what Mark Andreessen wrote about this. He says, Adam is a visionary leader who revolutionized the second largest asset class in the world, commercial real estate. Adam and the story of WeWork have been exhaustively chronicled, analyzed, and fictionalized, sometimes accurately. We understand how difficult it is to build something like this, and we love seeing repeat founders build on past successes by growing from lessons learned. What's your response to that? So my response to that is regardless of anything or what you believe may or may not have been fictionalized, he knowingly perpetrated fraud and lost billions of dollars. It's a fact. What is a major prestigious investment house doing backing fraud a second time? There is no excuse for that. And there has to be the ability to separate what is a good business idea that has the potential to be a good investment from the person who is behind that idea and executing on it. And what I would say is let's, let's think about where does Andreessen's money come from or any investment house. It comes from uh, endowments, it comes from wealthy individuals, it comes from pensions, it comes from other fiduciary backers. Is that where those people want their capital to be deployed? Andreessen is the steward of that capital. Do they want $350 million in a single check, the largest check written, to go to a person who knowingly committed fraud and lost billions of investor dollars? To me, I don't know how you justify that. Taking on Andreessen Horowitz, Allison, is bold. I mean, you might never get a check from them. Why take that risk? Okay. Uh, I Honestly, what this signaled to the world, and particularly to underrepresented founders, again, only 2% of females have, 2% of VC dollars go to women. I don't think I am getting a check from them, but also it signals that their check is not for me. Unfortunately, it signals that venture may not be for many founders, and that's just not true. Um, but you do have to be intentional and realistic about where you put your time as a founder if you want to build a successful company, and intentional about whose money it is that you're taking. For me, 
Ethics, business ethics, and competency and honesty are paramount along with the viability of the idea of my business and the difference that I want to make in this industry. I do not want investors who don't believe in that. I do not want an investor who clearly says, it is okay that you overstated yourself and your business. We're still going to write you a check. We're ignoring that to the exclusion of others who have more viable business ideas and better business ethics. You allude to that in your tweet where you say, founders value your time, getting a meeting does not equal getting a check, choose wisely. You also told TechCrunch, you could be mad about this all day long, but you have a lot of other female founder you know what to do. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? I assume you're talking about all the extra burden that comes with being a female founder. What's all this extra female founder stuff? Yes, of course. I think it's that sentiment, again, it's that muted rage. It's the, it's the known element for anyone who is on the receiving end of this that this is how it is. And if we're gonna run our businesses, we have to run our businesses. It is harder for us, the numbers don't lie, we do not get the funding, we do not get the resources, we do not have the access to the networks. Our metrics that we are uh, assessed by for signals of growth and potential are much harder than others. And this goes for women, but also a lot of other underrepresented groups. Uh, and you just have to keep going. I don't have time. I don't have time for this to consume my day. I'm building a successful business and I'm going to earn a profit for my investors. So yeah, I have my bleep to do. I got to go do it. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Your company, Scrubius, helps companies, helps people with their own pitching. What's your big idea? Yeah, so um, uh, thank you for bringing up Scrubius. Um, so our company is two years old. We're a startup too. It stemmed from my last experience where I did successfully raise $10 million for a startup medical device company that I helped launch and co-run, uh, where I experienced extreme gender bias during the fundraising process. So with Scrubius, uh, we are productizing what you would get from working with a pitch coach or having access to resources that teach you how investors think so that you can present yourself as investable. Because if you have been traditionally blocked from accessing those resources, whether by network or whether because of funds, because those are very expensive things to access for quality material, you don't know that you are not presenting in a compelling way. It is not intuitive to understand how investors think. Uh, and then on the other side of that, we are building, not yet launched, we have launched that founder side, uh, a data-driven way to curate in a hyper-curated way what investors see that, so that it will speak to them and what they want to write checks to, both the idea and the person, which is where we need the checks from at the early stage. Allison, thank you for having the courage to talk to us today um, and for sharing your story. I appreciate you stopping by. Thank you for having founder me and CEO, Allison Byers. A few other stories we're watching. Coinbase shares fell as much as 7% today after announcing in a blog post that it will temporarily pause new Ethereum and ERC-20 token deposits during the merge. It is a temporary precautionary measure. Ethereum anticipates the merge will be completed on or around September 15th. And after a number of delays, Apple has set a September 5th deadline for its corporate workers to be in the office at least three days a week. 
COVID surges delayed the company's plans multiple times. Apple has been making other COVID-related adjustments. It's also dropped its mask mandate in office common areas. And according to people familiar with the matter, Apple has laid off many of its contract-based recruiters in the last week. About 100 contract workers fired at the world's most valuable company were told these cuts were made due to changes in Apple's current business needs. We reported last month the company was joining many other tech firms and hitting the brakes on hiring. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. President Biden has now signed the $750 billion health care, climate, and tax bill into law, capping more than a year of negotiations as Democrats head into midterms this fall. Known as the Inflation Reduction Act, the bill aims to reduce inflation while encouraging greener industries to develop. And big tech has been vocal about wanting to go green for some time now, except big tech has actually been helping big oil make more profits than ever. Let's hear more about how. Bloomberg's Mark Bergen, who covers Alphabet, joins us now. So, Mark, is there some hypocrisy here, I sense? Uh, that's certainly the criticism from uh, both from outside environmentalists and then from, you know, even employees at these companies. So Microsoft actually has been the, the leader in the energy market um, a probably coming closely behind by, by uh, AWS and Amazon. Um, you know, these companies will say and have said multiple times that the reason that they're partnering with the oil and gas industry is to help them with the energy transition to clean, renewable sources, sort of low carbon. Uh, we, you know, we started out this report to sort of interrogate that idea. It looks like so far a lot of the work has been their existing um, oil and gas production, whether that's making that more efficient. And in some cases, you know, the, the oil and gas companies say, they're lowering the carbon footprint of those operations. Um, you know, there's there's certainly evidence that they haven't slowed down oil production, and especially now when you're seeing uh, gas prices have been so high this summer, there's there's political demand for the oil companies to be producing more, uh, and the cloud companies are really have these powerful data assets that let them do that more efficiently. I recently spoke with Thomas Curian, the head of Google Cloud, about Google Cloud's deal with. Saudi Aramco. Take a listen to what he had to say. We work with their system integration division to provide our technology to customers in different parts of the Middle East. We have said that again and again, that we don't work with the oil and gas division within Aramco, but with the system integration arm of Aramco. Does what he say, said there underscore what um, you're trying to explain here? Uh, I think so. I mean, you know, there's certainly... Employees at Google have been very vocal about this, um, as of employees in Amazon and, and Microsoft. And in some ways, if you're, uh, you know, just a Google shareholder, you might think, well, I want them to be more active in the, the industry. Like, there's a lot of money in the oil and, and, and gas uh, sector right now, whether that's their their regular sort of production and exploration businesses, and even some of this, you know, uh, Chevron. And, and BP and these big majors have talked about a big game about investing a lot of money in renewable energy. And so I think in some ways Google is sort of uh, in behind in this sector, whether or not that's because they intentionally sort of put one arm behind their back as far as limiting their, their work. Um, but I do think that's, that's a tension, you know, but it, it doesn't seem to be slowing down uh, Microsoft and Amazon. And, and in their defense, they're saying that, you know, the these oil companies wouldn't be able to move into uh, the renewables and clean energy as quickly without us. 
Interesting. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch your coverage on this Bloomberg's Mark Bergen. Thank you. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act will lower drug costs as well. I want to bring in Jason Kelly now, the CEO of the biotech firm Ginkgo Bioworks, to discuss. So, Jason, how does this bill being signed into law impact your corner of the biotech universe? Yeah, so there's actually two recent bills. Uh, so, th so there's the uh, Chips and Science Act and then the Inflation Reduction Act. Both, both of them are relevant in biotech. Um, uh, so on the Inflation Reduction Act, you, you saw these, you know, 45Q tax credits being expanded. You know, that, that's really to create, you know, a growing market for carbon capture. And I, and I think biology, if you like look out the window right now, you will see plants out there pulling CO2 out of the air and, and fixing it, um, you know, uh, and, and so, Biology we see as one of the few really scalable technologies for doing carbon capture. But I think the, the chips bill actually is just as important from my standpoint. Why do you think it's so important? Yeah, so so if you look at if you look in that bill, I think uh, two two things are critical. So one, I think you see the U.S. sort of kind of getting our mojo back uh, when it comes to like industrial policy and the and the government saying, hey, this sort of technology is important for us to have on shore. Um, you know, actually, Ginkgo, we just uh, acquired a company out in California or uh, uh, announced that we're going to acquire a company in California called Zymergen. You know, uh, this is to really build on the foundry technology we have at Ginkgo. You know. My view is we, we want to be doing that so that we're not doing a biochips bill, you know, 20 years from now and having to bring that back on shore. These, these types of uh, growth of these biofoundries here in the U.S. I, I think is important, and you see that reflected in the bill. You know, they, they, it directs the uh, a national engineering biology R&D initiative where OSTP is is supposed to uh, direct NSF and DOE and DOD to spend on this, and then also that has the OSTP establish a national genomic sequencing strategy. So you actually see bio in the bill alongside. Uh, chips. So, so I think it's a really, uh, it's a good signal by the government that these types of technologies are critical for the U.S. You've become a sort of regular voice for us through the pandemic. What are the biggest post-pandemic storylines in biotech right now that aren't being talked about enough? Yeah, so I, I think the big one um, is, is going to be certain types of Technologies that got built out in the during the pandemic are going to stick around for ongoing prevention. So uh, we actually just announced yesterday morning um, it's up to $61 million uh, contract with the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S. to do monitoring on an ongoing basis at airports in the U.S. Uh, where we basically collect samples from uh, planes that come in internationally and then sequence the DNA to look for new variants. And this program we did as a pilot with the CDC caught the first cases of BA2 and BA3 uh, in, in the U.S. that were sequenced. Well, now, now the CDC is funding this up to have it stick around. I mean, to me, this type of thing eventually will be kind of like a smoke detector, right? It should, we should be on the lookout for infectious disease. And that's a change, I think, that has happened because of COVID, but will stick around after COVID. Are we prepared to go back to school? You know, as a parent, I feel like there are still conflicting messages about masks, no masks, testing. Like, what are the rules supposed to be? Yeah, so, so CC did just update some, some guidance on this. So I, I think where we're headed uh, towards is, uh, is I think you're going to see the, the CC starting to reflect a little more how people have been operating. I think you're going to see you seeing relief in some of the things like the distancing rules and mask wearing, making it easier where if you've had an exposure, you don't need to quarantine. You now, just to be clear, if you have COVID, you still need to quarantine, right? So I think there's, there's been some misinterpretation a little bit on that. You know, so if you're a positive for COVID, you should quarantine. Uh, but for folks that have been exposed, uh, you don't need to. That's going to help a lot um, in terms of having classes full. I think the the regular model 
monitoring, you know, which we do in, as you know, like you know, 10 or 15 states across the country, where you're doing weekly testing uh, in a group, this actually allows for schools to stay open, right? Because you can identify, you know, if there's a positive case in a class, you can pick it out, send that one student home to quarantine, but not the whole class, and then prevent big outbreaks in schools, which I think if we let it just kind of rip, you will see a lot of that type of disruption, uh, you know, in various places. And so, so I think you'll end up seeing monitoring stay, you know, masking go, distancing go, and then the big wild card is, is there some new variant that flips that all on its head? And that's certainly still in the range of possibilities. Well, on that note, do you think there will be a universal COVID vaccine in the future or no, because, you know, the virus is just going to keep changing? So, I mean, you know, I think you will see the virus keep changing. Um, you know, I think people are working on this. There's ways to get at it in, in the in the scope of biotech, you know, like over the next 10, 20 years, I think we will get dramatically better at this. Um, but we, you know, obviously we've been fighting flu and we do updated uh, vaccines annually. I think you'll see things like that in the near term, but folks are definitely working on that. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we, you know, we can hope, uh, but I'd say in the near term, it's more likely to be just updated versions of the, the vaccine. All right. Well, we can hope indeed. Ginkgo BioWorks CEO, Jason Kelly, always good to have you. Jason, thanks for stopping by. All right, coming up, why is Jesse Powell still so bullish on Bitcoin? More on that and wider institutional sentiment on crypto next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Yeah, it's hard to know with the private markets. You know, obviously we're, we're not tracking the price uh, uh, on a minute by minute basis like the public markets are. 
so it's, it's really hard to know. You know, we haven't been out raising capital. We've got uh, a very long runway of cash in the bank. We're profitable. So uh, we don't need to go do another financing anytime soon. I, I think we'll probably wait for the market to improve before we do another another round. It is time now for our crypto report, and that was Kraken CEO Jesse Powell talking about what he thinks of the current crypto bear market in an interview earlier on Bloomberg's Crypto Show with Kaylee Lines. Let's talk about it more with our own crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Uh, Shanali, give us an update on the crypto markets and whether Jesse Powell is right by just waiting it out. Well, Jesse Powell had bought in more at about 18,000 and you saw Bitcoin did reach 25,000 for a bit this month. It has come down below 24,000 again. So where does that leave us, Emily? It doesn't leave us at the price that he thought it would hit last year. Do you remember he told you and me that Bitcoin would be worth a Lamborghini? But you know, even though it has not hit that price, you do see it about half the price it was at this time last year, but double where it was two years ago. It'll be interesting to see the market kind of sort out the natural price of Bitcoin as you make it through another cycle. Wanted to also point out Ethereum on the month because you do see a gain on the month. You do see the price rising because of that anticipation of the merge. But in more recent days, that excitement has worn off just a little bit. You have it rolling around 18077 right now. It did peak above 2000 this month with that anticipation of the merge. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that next. Um, all right, Shanali, stick with us. I want to talk about this more and how Bitcoin startups are trying to secure capital as, as the crypto winter continues. Um, are investors buying the industry back up? Are they staying cautious? Let's talk about that with Elise Killeen, founder and managing partner of Stillmark. So Elise, are you on the uh, bullish side like Jesse Powell or somewhere else on the spectrum? We're very bullish, both about Bitcoin, the asset, and the underlying protocol. And we have to be because entrepreneurial activity has never been more robust. In fact, we've seen a pickup in sort of the um, tests that people are willing to take during this period. When the market is more quiet, when we're in a bear market and there's less consumer activity, it's a great time to both dig into the metrics that you've produced in bull market times as well as to experiment. And that's what we're seeing now from top founders. What do you make of the merge? Because you saw this news coming out about Coinbase really looking to pause transactions in and around the merge. Clearly, there's going to be some technical difficulties around it as people try to scam others. That was a warning that they sent out. What are you thinking will be the near-term issues and what is the long-term prospect? Well, Coinbase, Coinbase is note that they're pausing deposits and withdrawals for ETH, I think is something that's expected, but it points out to us the trade-offs of using a centralized exchange to hold your cryptocurrency. Of course, there's some um, opportunities in using a custodian, but the advantage is to people using self-custody that they, they themselves set the rules for how they use their Bitcoin or their ETH or other forms of crypto assets. Now, looking ahead to ETH 2.0, I think that we know we know that there's risks and that the Ethereum community is hoping that there's great reward. But one of the things to look out for is the centralizing forces of moving from proof of work to proof of stake, of course. We know that the majority of ETH stakes, the vast majority of ETH stakes, is ETH belonging to these large institutions. And so, those folks, of course, are exposed to U.S. 
regulators and have been tested very recently mm -hmm. with um, OFAC coming out against tornado cash. And, and these same institutions that comprise the majority of state teeth, in fact, are those that have complied within days to OFAC sanction of tornado I'm cash. I'm so glad you brought up tornado cash because earlier today, Jesse Powell did say that the shutdown was unconstitutional. I'm wondering how you see this debate really playing out in the market, the good, the bad, and what behaviors might not be accepted among these companies moving forward. It's hard to know what regulators are going to do, but it's easy to know how centralized institutions are going to respond. They're going to comply. And that's the value, of course, of decentralization. So we know that Bitcoin leads with decentralization. What that means is that when looking at how the protocol is secured, Bitcoin finds it most important to make sure that the protocol is secured in a decentralized fashion and that any individual user can do two things. One, they can validate the code. Bitcoin's um, core protocol and its payments network protocol are open source. Users can know the rules, the software rules of these systems. But number two, users can participate in validating the accuracy of the ledger themselves. That's something that's much easier to do in Bitcoin than in other protocols. And one of the reasons it's important to be able to do that is sort of being demonstrated by the news of the last couple of weeks and the implications of um, government's imposition of um, regulations, for instance, regulations to prevent things like money laundering. We're seeing that happen now with Tornado Cash. And we know that some of the most critical services in the Ethereum space have have felt the need to comply and have quickly done so, making users that have received even passively transactions from Tornado Cash um, sort of lose access to services that they depended on. Elise, I recently sat down with Coinbase COO Emily Choi to talk about their partnership with BlackRock. Take a listen to what she had to say. I have wanted to do that BlackRock partnership since the day I joined Coinbase. So for this to come together now, actually, during the crypto winter is such an incredible testament to where we are, where they are, where their customers are. And I, I think the most important point is it speaks to institutional customers, very traditional institutional customers, wanting to get crypto asset exposure. She said to expect more partnerships like this, but every day there are more bumps in the crypto road. You know, how is this all impacting, give us the temperature of investor sentiment, institutional sentiment. So the BlackRock and Coinbase partnership will launch Bitcoin only. What BlackRock is doing is allowing its institutional investors to participate, to buy Bitcoin and to trade Bitcoin via Coinbase while still using BlackRock's software for management and for risk analysis. This, I think, was a response. We see it as a clear response to the demand of the very traditional institutions that are served by BlackRock. Now, what's important to note here is that providing a new on-ramp in a familiar environment and with familiar tools is likely to act as a very significant catalyst for institutional adoption. I want to flip this for a moment, though, Emily, and say that while, while we're seeing traditional institutions adopt Bitcoin, like BlackRock, 
We know that some of the most significant and important adoption of Bitcoin and of Bitcoin's payments network is happening in emerging markets. And so these two forms of adoption are happening simultaneously. And I, I think add to sort of the the fundamental value of Bitcoin that Jesse from Kraken spoke to earlier. Hmm. Elise Kaleem, Stillmark Capital, thank you so much for sharing your views with us today, as well as our own Shanali Basik. Amazon is fighting back against the FTC. In a filing made public on Monday, Amazon claims that FTC staff have made unduly burdensome demands on the e-commerce giant as it keeps investigating its subscription services. Here for more on this, Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum with us now. And Amazon also claiming that the FTC is harassing Jeff Bezos. How so? Yeah, so in this filing made public yesterday, Amazon claims that um, the FTC has been overreaching in their ongoing consumer protection investigation into Amazon subscription services. So that includes Prime, and it's actually expanded to include Audible, Kindle, and, and some other of Amazon's uh, services. So. They, um, the FTC issued what's called civil investigative demands, um, which are essentially subpoenas um, to 20 former and current Amazon employees. They served them at their houses, and that includes Jeff Bezos and Andy Jassy, the two top executives at Amazon. Um, and they say it was unnecessary to give them to Jassy and Bezos. Um, these are about a lot of different parts of the business. These are the highest level executives. Um, you know, there's nothing. This is what Amazon says. They say there's nothing that Jassy and Bezos can give you that you can't get from documents and lower level executives. Is this unusual? It's actually extremely unusual um, in how confrontational it is. What's typical is that companies will always fight to narrow down subpoenas and civil investigative demands that they get from the government. Um, but what's atypical is how public this is, how aggressive they are in their rhetoric, You know, calling this very unusual, perplexing, um, and um, asking the FTC to pare it down in such a public way. Remind us why the FTC is investigating Amazon and the status of this case. So the FTC has been investigating Amazon um, for several years now. It actually began under the Trump administration um, when they were uh, the, given the power to investigate Amazon over antitrust um, concerns. Um, it's uh, gotten broader since then. This particular investigation that we're talking about is a consumer protection investigation into whether Amazon makes it too difficult for consumers to opt out of Amazon Prime or other subscription services. But this is only one part of a sweeping investigation that looks at all parts of Amazon's business, including cloud, including um, streaming. So when could we expect this to draw to some sort of conclusion? The filing says that the FTC intends to make a decision about whether to sue Amazon um, over the subscription issue by the fall. Um, this is probably going to prolong it, so it's probably going to take um, uh, more time than that, you know, a couple of months. Um, but uh, what's clear from the filing is FTC staff are under a lot of pressure by um, the commissioners, including FTC Chair Lena Khan, to get something done by the end of the year. All right, well, we'll continue to follow your reporting on this. Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum for us in Washington. Thank you.
And so much. that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Wednesday, we've got ARM CEO Renee Haas joining us about the chip landscape and the latest with their possible IPO. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can find it on the terminal, online, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.